You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. home. Good, good to see you guys and visiting with us. Bob, come on up. I'm going to get you to pray. This is Kirkwood's dad. His mom are, are, are here with us today. We're glad. And uh, just bow your heads with me if you would. Uh, I shared uh, a need in the early service. We all know Scott and Tammy Lenning. Uh, Scott is in New Zealand preparing for the Franklin, uh, the Franklin Graham crusade down there. And uh, Tammy's about to leave to go be with him for, I think, about two months. And um, their grandbaby has had surgery and is home. But now uh, Tammy's mother was taken to the hospital yesterday. And they really are asking us to pray. We've got so many to pray for. Uh, Just bow your heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. And if you've got a need this morning, just lift your hand. I've just got a need. I just got a personal need. There's a need that's there. Amen. A lot of us have needs. Really, all of us do. Bob, would you lead us and pray for the folks here at Valleydale? Heavenly Father, we bow humbly before you. Know you are good. We just sang of your goodness forever. And as we come before you with needs, God, we know your grace is sufficient. You know before we ask, Scott and Tammy, all those who have raised their hands, God, move mightily among us. For some, there will be comfort. Some, there will be healing. Some, just strength to get through a difficult time. But all the while knowing that you are faithful. God, most of all, as we come together to worship, unify us. You say in your word in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God, help us to see you more clearly today. Anoint Pastor Mac as he brings the word, the great story of Moses. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who has not known your redemption, that today would be the day of salvation. And for those of us who do, unify us around the preached word, around the filling of your spirit. That we wouldn't just say, what a great service, what a great sermon, but what a great God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that we would leave here renewed and filled to walk according to your guidance for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you take your copy of God's Word, open uh, the Bible with me to Exodus chapter 1, chapter 2. I still feel like I'm giving introduction into the book, Um, just kind of um, by way of information. I just keep dropping some things uh, along the way. I've shared with you that the major theme of the first two chapters uh, happens to be the verse that says this in chapter 1. 
uh, and there rose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Now, the verse that really prompts that up and gives you some insight into that is when we read down in verse 10 where that Pharaoh says, come and let us deal wisely with them. That is, let us as Egyptians deal wisely. Let me as a leader deal wisely. Human wisdom, my wisdom, my ability, how am I going to deal with what I perceive to be is a tremendous threat. Now, this is all about his wisdom. It's all about uh, his ability. It's humanism put on display is what it is. And uh, in the midst of all of that, you're going to discover God's wisdom. You're going to see God's wisdom. Now, in the first two chapters, um, the name of God doesn't appear until the very end of both chapters. Appears three times at the end of chapter one, appears five times at the end of chapter two. And there's a reason for that. Because in chapter one, what you've got on display is you've got on display the wisdom of wicked leadership, worldly leadership, of pagan leadership. You've got humanism on display, and the Holy Spirit comes at the very end and puts the name of God there three times, is if to say this, God's wisdom is going to have the final say over man. Then you're going to come to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, you're going to see this same thing, but the wisdom now is going to be the wisdom of Moses. And you think, well, that's going to be interesting. Let's going to see Moses' wisdom. He's a Hebrew. Um, he's going to, surely he's going to display some great wisdom. No, it's wisdom of a good man, but it's still faulty human wisdom. Uh, and uh, at the end of that, five times you're going to see the name of God as if the Holy Spirit says, no, God's going to have the final say over smart, good people. So you've got this play that's going on between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And you see the wisdom of man here in how Pharaoh's going to deal with the people of God. He's going to enslave them, and then he's going to try to bring about this death of all of the male children. And when none of that kind of works for him, uh, he is going to then just deputize the entire nation of Egypt, ask all the Egyptians, you just grab a male uh, baby that's Hebrew and just kill it, infanticide, just kill it. That's how the chapter ends. Um, in all of that, you see how he's going to deal. Now, do you remember the words of God to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 when he says to Abraham, he's going to say this later to Isaac, he's going to say this later to Jacob, those who bless you, I will bless, but those who curse you, I'm going to curse. Now that's what you're going to see taking place as we make it through these opening chapters, which by the way, only up to chapter 10 are they in Egypt. We normally think of Exodus that all of Exodus is carried out in the midst of Egypt only up through chapter 10. Do you know where the majority of Exodus takes place? It's at Mount Sinai. It's at the Mount of God. Not only is Exodus, the rest of Exodus from chapter 10 on, uh, carried out, lived out there at Sinai, all of Leviticus, until you get to the 10th chapter of the, uh, of the book of Numbers. It's all at Sinai. You've got a year from about the 10th chapter of Exodus to about the 10th chapter of the book of Numbers, all at Sinai. Now, I'm just giving you introductory type stuff, trying to give you information to help you understand the book of Exodus. 
Now what you've got working now is you've got man's wisdom working. You've got God's wisdom that you're going to see work. And uh, this is what I want you to, to grasp and to understand is this. I want you to understand that God's presence may not be seen, but God's wisdom will always be unmistakable. When God acts, when God moves in a situation, you will see God's wisdom as God's people, and it's unmistakable. God's present. You may not see him. You may not sense that he's there. But when you see God's wisdom, you never, ever get that out of your mind. Now, every morning when I get up, I, there's something I enjoy doing. I go through a couple of newspapers. Uh, one of them I'll go through is uh, the morning mail or, or the daily mail from out of London. It's a national newspaper in England. And they've always got one of these brain teasers that's in there. And so I'll check it every morning, make sure my brain, I've still got a brain. And so I'll look at these things and they're kind of fascinating. You see that? Have you ever looked at these things? Can you find the duck in that picture? <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you, there it is right there. See it? Now you see it. There's the duck in the picture. Find the duck in the picture. Well, I think there are three of them. But there's, there's the duck right there. Now listen, I'm using this as an illustration for a purpose. Now go back to the original. There. Now look away. Now look back. Where does your eye go? Right to that dumb duck. Right? You go right back every single time. Every time I see that now, my eye goes right to that duck. That's the way the wisdom of God is when you see it. When you see it, you can't get it out of your mind. You always look back and you see that's the wisdom of God right there. Um, I love history, and one of the things that I'm going to say uh, to you is this. In history, we're always asking the question, can you see God at work in human history? That's what I want to show you this morning. I want you to look at that. Yes, you can, and when you see it, you can't ever unsee it. Now, let me read you something out of Romans chapter 9. If you've got a copy of God's Word, put your finger in Exodus and just listen to, to Romans chapter 9 when Paul writes in verse 17, and he says this, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very person, uh, purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God says to Pharaoh, listen, I am working. You're constantly working in ways to try to harm my people, and I am light years ahead of you, and I am putting things in place so that out of what you do, I'm bringing and showing the world my power and my wisdom. That's what you see going on in this text. And I'm going to show you just a couple of things. But let me, let me just go back to that thing. Remember this, at the end of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 2, you're going to see the name of God. And the name of God is, going, is there at the end essentially to say, when you use human wisdom, God is going to have the final say over it. By the way, before I get to the first thing, can I show? Now, all of you young ladies, especially you younger young ladies, I want you to listen to me. When you come to chapter 1, we're not given Pharaoh's name. We're not given that name. Uh, but we are given the name of two women that are there that we would normally never pay attention to, never think about. They were the midwives that came to care for the Hebrews 
uh, when the Hebrew women were giving birth, we've got their two names for all of human history. There is confusion and doubt and wonder about who Pharaoh is in this passage, but we know the two women uh, that figured significantly because they feared God. You come to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, you're going to be introduced to a teenage girl, and you're going to discover her name a little later on, and her name is Miriam. That is the sister of Moses, and she figures significantly into chapter 2. So what I'm telling you is this, that uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 into the drama of Old Testament redemption, the heroes, Exodus 1, chapter 2. Two women and a teenage girl. There you go. And the women just sit there. Well, I'm trying to give y'all credit, but you, you don't respond to me, so let's just go to the passage. Now, chapter 2. Here we are. I want you to watch this because godly wisdom, watch, godly wisdom produces life out of death. Now, man, you can just take that and you can move through the Word of God and you see this. Uh, God's wisdom will always bring this life out of death. Now, as Exodus begins in chapter 1, it begins in death. Uh, you just look at verse 6 and it says Joseph died and then all of his brothers died and then all that generation died. You've got this whole thing of death that is right there. The whole of Exodus opens up like a horror movie and there's death, death, death. And then it goes down, it progresses down from that. This Pharaoh is going to enslave all of the Hebrews and then he's going to take every baby and he's going to kill every male baby at birth and then he's going to move beyond that and he's going to just go whole in for infanticide against every Hebrew male child. So you've got this digression that is there. It goes down and it goes down and it goes down. You come to chapter 2 and you see a baby born you think all of this is going to change. Well, by the time you get to the end of Exodus chapter 2, Moses is going to kill somebody. Moses the murderer. You ever think about that? Moses the guy who killed an Egyptian because in Moses' mind, this is the way I'm going to handle You've seen how Pharaoh's going to handle his situation. Now you see how Moses is going to handle his situation. Well, this is the way I saw this. I just killed this Egyptian here. And so you've got nothing but death. It's darkness, and it gets darker, and it gets dark. You, you wonder, are there degrees to darkness? Well, my word, as you come through chapter 1 and through chapter 2 of Exodus, it gets darker and darker and darker until all of a sudden there is a light, and that light is a burning bush. And guess who that light is? I think it's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Well... You're moving through all of this darkness now, and a baby is born. Watch. Chapter 2, verse 1, now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore, or the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, he's too big, he's making too much noise. Uh, she got him a wicker basket. Now, I'm going to stop right there, and I'm going to work down through the rest of this verse. And you're going to see, I hope, the wisdom of God and how it produces life out of death. She makes a wicker basket. You know what that word is in the Hebrew? It's the word for ark, 
A-R-K. It's the exact same word. This is the only places you're going to find this unique word is right here. And then you go back to Genesis chapter 6 where God comes to a man by the name of Noah and he says, I want you to build an ark. So you've got Noah's ark and you've got the exact same word that is right here. We've got it. It's translated wicker basket. Probably it's made out of the bulrushes there. But the word literally here is the word ark. Uh, She makes an ark for this baby. It's interesting. Uh, These two places, Umberto Casuto was a Hebrew scholar, and in his commentary on Exodus, he says it's the only time this particular word is used, number six, and right here in Exodus chapter two. So Noah's ark is compared to the ark or the basket that uh, Moses' mother has made. Now let me take it a step further. Because you read in the text, it says this. After she made that wicker basket, she covered it over with tar and pitch. That word covered right there is the word in the Greek, and uh, in, in the Hebrew. And the word there literally means, it means to smear. She smeared on the outside of it. She smeared around the inside of that basket. It's the exact same word that is used when when Noah smears pitch and tar on the ark that he has built. It seals it. It keeps keeps water from leaking in. It keeps uh, whatever it is afloat. She smears this. Now, listen, the word literally in the Hebrew means to ransom, to ransom. When you ransomed something, you redeemed it, you purchased it, you bought it, you saved it, you delivered it. She smeared that thing with this pitch and this tar, just as Noah did the ark, so that it would stay afloat because what is on the inside is going to be ransomed. It's going to be redeemed. It is going to be saved. It's going to be delivered. Now, there's one step beyond that When you come to this word, if you go and you look it up, you go and look it up in Strong's Exhaustive Concordance or Young's Concordance or Vine's uh, Word Commentary, you look it up, you you look it up in any of these, and what you're going to discover is this, is that word ransom that is used right here and is used back in, in Genesis to describe what Noah does is also a word that describes a color, and the color is red. So here is Moses' mother, and what she's doing is she's taking a basket that is really an ark, and she is smearing, she's ransoming it, she's smearing it with this pitch and tar, and the color of that pitch and tar happens to be red. Y'all just sit there, okay? I'm telling you, do you not see something coming? Well, it's coming. Just hang on. Watch. It's coming. She covers it. She smears it. She ransoms it so that what's on the inside is saved. It's delivered. It's redeemed. She covers it over with tar and pitch, and then she put the child into it. She takes the thing that is so close and dear to her heart, and she puts it over into that basket, and look at what it says, and she set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. The word there in the Greek is ek. 
Tithomi means to place, to put, to set, to stand. You know, you put something here. Ek is out of. She, put, she, she placed it out of her sight, out of her reek. She put it out on that water. The interesting thing is she put it in the reeds. Let me tell you, that basket was most likely made out of reeds, and she goes down there because we're told she puts it in the reed. And I got this from old, old, old Theodore Epp. One day, reading his commentary on Moses' life, his book on Moses' life, two volumes set on Moses' life, Theodore Epp said the reason she set that basket in the midst of the reeds is because crocodiles are notoriously um, uh, plentiful in the Nile River and they cannot stand reeds. They won't get around it. It smells like something terrible to them. It tastes like something terrible to them. And so she takes it and she puts it there. Now that whole thing is telling me something about her. It's telling me this, that she puts it out there. She puts her baby in that basket. She wants it to be ransomed. She wants it to be redeemed, delivered, saved. And she puts it in there and she puts it in the midst of the reed because she doesn't want crocodiles to get. She's beginning to think about this as she puts it out there. Her baby, she puts there. She's thinking about crocodiles are in this thing. Hippopotamus are out there in the Nile, by the way. Do you know more people are killed every year by hippopotamus than they are by lions in Africa? They just, one chomp of a hippopotamus and you're gone. You just, it'll bite you in two. It has that kind of ability to do that. Well, she puts it out there and I am certain she stops and she thinks, what about the current? What's going to happen if the current takes this basket and washes it down? Just like in the video that we show at the beginning of the, of, of the sermon, the ser- sermon bumper. What's going to happen if it just came, the current comes along and washes my baby out? What's going to happen if somebody hears a cry coming out of the midst of a basket floating down the Nile River? Somebody sees a basket and they think, well, hey, run out there and grab that thing. And they discover a Hebrew child. They just dump the child out. Now, she's got all of these things, I am certain, running through her mind. I think that's why it's stated that she puts it among the reeds. She's not just trying to to hide it, but she's trying to keep it from crocodiles, and she's trying to keep it in the reeds from floating off because she's worried about what if the thing springs a leak? What if it sinks? What if it begins to leak and the thing sinks? And so she's thinking through all of this in her mind, and yet we are told, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. By faith. By faith she put that child in that basket. By faith she put that basket into the Nile River. And by faith she was trusting God. Now I want you to listen to me carefully at this point. This is something you need to grasp. Faith is not confidence that something bad is not going to happen. That's not what faith is. Faith is risking what you hold dear by entrusting it to God even in bad days. Some of you here need to entrust some things to Jesus Christ. Some of you here need to entrust, like she did, her child to an Entrust your child that God's going to take care of your child. Entrust your family. God's going to take care of your family. Entrust, listen, it, you say, but preacher, you don't know how difficult it is. Yes, I've had three teenagers in my house before. I do know. 
I've got grandchildren now growing into their teenage years. And I'm thankful that they're grandchildren and not children. But let me tell you something. What you do is this. To the best of your ability, not convinced that bad times won't come, but convinced that God can save them and save us even when there are bad times. Now let me show you the wisdom of God in all this. The wisdom of God in all of this is that here is this guy who says, I want you to take every Hebrew male baby and I want you to throw it into the Nile to kill it, to take its life. And here is a mother with a Hebrew male child who takes her baby and she places it in an ark that is smeared with ransom, that is ransom, that is covered, and she puts it into the same Nile that he wants you to throw the baby. She sets it down into the Nile and she trusts at that point that God is going, I don't know how many children those Egyptians killed, how many Hebrew children they threw into the Nile, but I do know this, there is one that he delivered out of the Nile who is going to deliver, deliver them out of Egypt. There is the wisdom of God. There is the wisdom of God as it produces life out of death. Now listen, let me tell you, there's one more ark in Scripture. There's one more ark that is covered, that is smeared, that is ransomed. And it is a piece of wood that stands on a hill called Calvary. And it is smeared with that which is red. And every single person that runs into it will be ransomed and redeemed and saved and delivered. And it's called the cross. And you see it right here. God is moving way ahead of every move that Pharaoh makes. It's funny to me. You see that so clearly in this second thing I want to show you. Second thing I want you to see is this, is godly wisdom triumphs over evil intentions. Uh, there's just evil intention everywhere. No, no good, nothing godly, nothing noble uh, here, just all these evil intentions, and yet godly wisdom triumphs over all these evil intentions that are here. Years and years in advance, God has, really from eternity past, all of this had been planned out. God knew exactly what was going to happen. God knew exactly his response. God knew what he was going to do. Now watch this. She's put that baby out there in the Nile. His sister, Miriam, stood at distance to watch what would happen to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile and her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid. And she brought it to her and she opened it and saw that the child, behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is a Hebrew child. This is a Hebrew baby. I'm supposed, Daddy says, I'm supposed to kill this. I'm supposed to just turn this over and dump it out into the river. But she has pity on him. Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we don't know Pharaoh's daughter's name here. We don't know Pharaoh's name. We don't know her daughter, uh, his daughter's name, who this is. Then his sister, this is Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, she, she pops up now, and she says, hey, what if I go call a nurse for you from among the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? You see, obviously, Pharaoh's daughter had not had a child. 
Uh, she did not have milk. She could not do that. And so Miriam jumps up and says, hey, let me go get a wet nurse for you. Let me go get a woman uh, who has milk that can feed the baby. And Pharaoh's daughter said, hey, great idea. Go ahead. Go get her. So the girl went off and called the child's mother, her mother, Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, do you get all of this that's going on here? Pharaoh's daughter, the very guy who wants to throw them all in there and kill them, she finds one floating in a basket, and she falls immediately in love with the child. Oh, this is my baby. This is my baby. Miriam jumps up and says, hey, let me go get a nurse. Let me get a nurse for you. She can nurse the baby, and she can care for the baby and do all the stuff for the baby that you're not prepared to do. And uh, the princess, hey, that's a great idea. Go do that. She goes, gets Moses' mama to come down there. And Moses' mother comes, unbeknownst to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter looks at him and says, take this baby, nurse it. And, and t- I'll tell you what, I'll pay you money to do this. I'll pay you money to raise your own child. You take the child back with you. You keep the child until he's weaned. That's about five years of age in that culture. At that day and time, they nursed up until about four or five years of age. And so she said, you take this child and you rear him, you nurse him, you feed him, you care for him until he is weaned. All through those formidable formidable little years, you know, four years of age, five years of age, that mind is learning and turning. Here is Jacobed. She's got her own baby boy with her. She's cared. And what is she doing? She's pouring into this child. The stories of Abraham, the stories of Isaac, the stories of Jacob, the stories of Joseph, all that God is going to do. Joseph swore to his brothers, God is going to come and he's going to take care of you and you will be taken out of here and you will be delivered over to the promised land. All of that she's pouring into this child in the formative years. Getting paid to do it. Before they had government programs to pay you for that kind of stuff. (laughs) Getting paid to rear her own child. And just to pour. Listen, I had a Jesuit priest look at me one time. He said, you give me a child until they're 12 and they're mine forever. He's talking about the formative years. Let me pour into their mind. That's what she's doing. Jacobed's just pouring all this, all this Jewish history into this boy's mind. You're going to see it come up in chapter 2. We'll get there. We'll get to the rest of this sometime in about 2024. Um, that's what she's doing. And now at five years of age, she's going to take him back over there to the palace. And she's going to take him back and say, okay, here he is. I've got him all trained and prepared and, you know, all, he's all ready. He's yours. He can eat solid food now and he's good to go. And she's going to take Moses and she's going to put him. Let me tell you something. Have you ever stopped to think these were the most brilliant people on the earth. They did things we cannot figure out to this day. By this time, the great pyramid at Giza had been standing for hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand years or better. The obelisks 
that were all over that the Romans took out of Egypt when the Romans got there. Took them back. If you want to go see, you can see one in New York City, by the way, in Central Park. But if you want to see all of these obelisks that the Egyptians built, go to, go to Rome and look at how the Romans brought them back and put them. They're a ray of light. An obelisk is a ray of light. It's pointing back up to heaven, back up to the sun. It was an object of worship to the sun god. These obelisks have been standing now for centuries when Moses was born. The Sphinx had been guarding the entrance into Egypt for centuries now. These were brilliant engineers. These were tremendous builders, great mathematicians, and now Moses is going to finish high school, and he's going to go off to Pharaoh's university. He gets to go to PU. Good old PU. He goes off to Pharaoh's university. And there at Pharaoh's university, what's he going to take? He's going to take, listen, cosmogony, because the Egyptians believed greatly in how the world came about. They believed that the earth hatched from an egg that had wings that flew around the universe. And when mitosis had taken place, all of a sudden there was a pop, there was a crack, and the earth was birthed. Sound like a big bang to you? I I, I hate to inform you, we're not the smartest people we think we are. The Egyptians already had a concept of this. There was an egg that cracked, that popped, and out came the earth. And when Moses was there at Pharaoh University, at Pharaoh University, he was taught this cosmogony of how the world came about, and Moses would later write these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's also going to take astronomy because the the Egyptians were tremendous astronomers. They'd mapped out the heavens. They had laid out the heavens. They had divided it off into quadrants. They had named stars and planets, and uh, they had all of this information, uh, more so than any other people on the earth at that time. And they were convinced that the reason the sun was so bright was that it reflected the light of the earth. The ancient Egyptians believed that the earth gave off light and that the sun reflected it back. That's why it was so bright. That's why they would build an obelisk with a ray of light coming up from the earth and pointing out into space because they thought from the earth light was emanating out. And so Moses would have gone and he would have studied that. And yet in Genesis chapter 1 verse 14, you read this, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Well, now how did Moses know that? How did Moses know that? How did he know that the sun was giving light to the earth and it was not the reverse the way the Egyptians believed and the earth was giving light to the sun? The third thing he would have taken there at Pharaoh University would have been anthropology. 
man? Where did he come from? Where was man's beginning? How did man get on this earth? Let me tell you something. Darwin was not the original evolutionist. The Egyptians were. They would go down to the mud banks of the Nile River, and in that soupy, muddy water there, they would see these little white worms, this larva that would just dig down and around into the mud. And every time they dug through the mud, they, they would dig up all of this larva. And they believed that is where human life came from, that this larva somehow developed into man. What does higher education teach us today? It teaches us that there in the primordial soup of the beginning of time that this amino acid linked up with this amino acid and uh, all of a sudden it began to collect together and up out of that. Sounds just like the Egyptians in the days of Moses. And yet it was the man who was educated in their universities and in their learning and in their education said this, God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over everything on the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female Nothing else, male and female, he created them. Listen, here is a kid that Pharaoh wanted to kill as a baby. And yet Pharaoh, he ends up footing the educational bill at the university for a kid, and he trains him in Egyptian astronomy and cosmogony and in anthropology, and yet this is the same educated man who sits down and writes the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. Ha! The wisdom of God every single time triumphs over the evil intentions of man. Every time. Now, I've just given you apologetics. And you're all just sitting there. You should have been writing some of this down. Because I'm telling you, that right there answers the goofy stuff we're paying today for our kids to be taught in university. And you say, when a preacher, I'm offended at that. Good. I hope you are. Please write me and let me know this week. And I'll feel as if I have really preached the Word of God today. Here is the wisdom of God as it trumps the evil intentions of man. Listen, here is the guy that is educated by Pharaoh that Pharaoh intended to kill who is going to turn around and give us the story of creation. You want to hear what the prophet Isaiah says about this? The Lord of hosts has sworn saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand. God will have the final word on the brilliance of man. 
He was 17 years old. Lived just uh, out of Edinburgh, Scotland with his mother. And as he graduated, he was headed off to university. And his mother gave him something that he found to be ridiculous. She inscribed his name, William Patton McKay. M-A-C-K-A-Y. Good Scottish name. William Patton McKay. She inscribed his name in her own handwriting in the front of the Bible. And she gave a verse. He went off to college. He loved running with all the guys and all the gals. He enjoyed so much the drinking, the partying. Everything now was about, you know, my social life. And he gave himself to that. Pretty near drank his opportunity away. In fact, he came to the place where he ran out of money and he took that Bible that his mother had given him and he went down to a pawn shop and he pawned it off there and pawned it to get enough money so he could go and get another drink. Nearly flunked out that first year. Just in being social, playing and partying. Then he thought to himself, I've got to get serious. I've got to make something of myself. I've got to to put all of this aside, and I've really got to get my head back in my studies. And he did just that. And he finished college with honors, and he went on to medical school, and he finished medical school as a doctor, and he got a job in the city hospital there in Edinburgh. Uh, But he was lost. He had no feelings for people. He could care less. He was a doctor because he was interested in the money. But he could care less about people. He was short. He was curt. He was harsh. He was hard. He he wasn't interested in anybody's feeling. He wasn't curious about curing anybody. He really was just curious about making money and having his own good time. It started out just a regular day, checking on patients, filling out paper, filling out charts, going in and out of rooms when he walked into a room where there was a man that was dying. He examined the man and he thought to himself, there's not a thing in the world we can do. And so he looked at the man and just in that cold way, without any feeling, without any bedside manner at all, he told the man, you're, you're dying and there's nothing I can do for you. And the man began to scream, get me my book. Get me the book. And the doctor just looked at him. He looked at the nurse and They shrugged their shoulders, and the man said, I've got to have, he was just adamant, I'm dying, give me my book, get me the book. And so with that, McKay turned and he walked out of the room. He went on the rest of his rounds, tending to things that he had to tend to. The man came back to his mind later in the day, and he decided, I'm going to go back and see if that man's still alive. And he walked back into the room, the man was dead. Then he began to think about what this man want, what book did this man want so badly that he, that he was just screaming at everybody, he's dying, he doesn't want any person, he didn't want anybody, he just wanted a book. What's the book that he wanted? And so he pulls back the sheets and down tucked under the man in his hand uh, was a book and he reached over and he pulled the book out and it was a Bible. And he took it and he opened the Bible to the front page and he looked down 
and he saw the name William Patton McKay in the handwriting of his mother. He'd forgotten about that Bible. He'd forgotten about pawning that Bible to get money to buy whiskey. And it's so intriguing that he took the book and he went to his office and he locked the door and McKay sat down for the next number of hours and he went to that verse that his mother had put and then she had listed another verse and then another verse and all through that she had intended him to go through these passages and these verses and well into the night, William Patton McKay read through that Bible, those verses that his mother had marked and he bowed his head and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And there William Patton McKay wrote these words. We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Over every human life, God will have the final say. Stand with me if you would. All of us standing, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Do you know what Pharaoh says to Moses when he finally comes after that final plague, the death of the firstborn, when Scripture tells us death was in every house? You know what Pharaoh says to Moses? He says, get them out. Take your people and get out. Take your cattle. Take everything that you have and get out. And at the end of that little verse, it says this. But bless me. But bless me. In other words, Moses, I've come to see your God is the real God. I've come to see your God is the God of power. I've come to see that there is no God in our pantheon of gods that is anything like your God. And so before you go, Moses, bless me. I want what you have. I, I, I want to know what you know. I want the blessing of God on my life that you have. He, he wanted that. He knew that. But he never gave his life to the Lord. Let me tell you something. It's not enough for you to know that there is a God. There's not enough for you to know that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and that Christ died and that he was resurrected. It's not enough for you to know that. You must come to the place where you commit your life to it. Where you pray, Lord Jesus, be Lord of my life. Let me tell you something. God is God and Jesus is Lord whether you recognize it or not. What changes is when you come into personal relationship with him. Some of you here this morning need to do just that. 
You need to come into personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So in this moment, just admit that you're a sinner. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. And I believe, Jesus, that you're God in the flesh and that you died on a cross for me and that you were raised from the dead to give me eternal life. And I receive that free gift and I give all that I am. And the only way that I know, I receive you. And I know because your word tells me that you'll receive me. For as many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. Now, if you've just done that, I want to know that. If you've just done that, I want you to come and share with me that you've just prayed to give your life to Christ. Others of you that are here this morning, I have no idea what God's saying to your heart. Some of you are desperate to know that God is going to win in the end. Let me tell you, He will. He does. You can trust Him. You can put whatever you value, whatever you love into that ark. Just do it by faith and trust that God will have the final say. You may not see it tomorrow. You may not see it next month. But let me tell you something. God can be trusted. Some of you need to come and get at this altar. Others of you need to come and put your life in the life of this church. Father, in these moments, as we make decisions, I pray, Father, that our lives would reflect that we are responding to you as Lord and Savior. And I pray that in Jesus' name. You come right now as Kirkwood leads us. You step out and make that decision. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.